I'd like to invite you tonight to turn in your Bibles to the first chapter of the Gospel of Mark. Mark 1 is where we are set to study the Word of God tonight. I mentioned to you this morning that in Mark chapter 1, verses 2 through 8, we begin a series tonight entitled, Qualities of an Excellent Ministry. And it would be well for us to read this portion of Scripture as we begin our study this evening regarding that wonderful theme, Qualities of an Excellent Ministry. Let's read in Mark chapter 1, verses 2 through 8. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him and all the people of Jerusalem. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. And John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist. And his diet was locusts and wild honey. And he was preaching and saying, After me one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Qualities of an excellent ministry. What does it mean to pursue excellence in ministry? Is there a difference between excellence and success? Those terms seem to be used synonymously in our day. And if there is a difference between the two, what is it? These questions, and I'm trusting many, many more, are going to be a part of our study as we move through this particular portion of Mark chapter 1, as we look at the life of John the Baptist, and we ask ourselves this question, what kind of excellent ministry did John the Baptist himself pursue in his own life? Well, in one way of answering that question, the question of excellence and success, one person put it this way. Two dangers threaten the survival of Christendom. The one is mediocrity. The other is success. We have been tempted by both of them. Mediocrity has come to characterize the behavior of most people in most of our institutions. People grow up in homes with mediocre parents, receive a mediocre education, become mediocre in their productivity and industries that reek of mediocrity. They live out their Christian commitment in a mediocre fashion within the context of churches that have mediocre programs. Success, on the other hand, like mediocrity, also cannot be the goal of the Christian. Wealth, power and prestige, the common marks and symbols of worldly success are not things that Christians are to aspire to possess. Evangelicalism has undergone fantastic growth in the past several years. 
Its numerical expansion and its heightened prestige have been conducive to the, to the development of a success theology. Those who propagate this new belief system argue that those who follow the teachings of Scripture and imitate Jesus will become a success in any venture they enter. But to become followers of Jesus means for the propagators of the success theology that Christians will be champions in athletics, winners in races for political office, victorious in beauty contests and leaders in business. They argue that the Christian lifestyle is a guaranteed route to the financial rewards that belong to the elite. Trusting in God will make all kinds of good things happen, from helping us to find parking places on crowded city streets to winning Olympic medals. All in all, Christianity has become a theodicy of good fortune for all too many in this second half of the 20th century. Now, if this writer is saying what is true, and I believe that he is, Christianity indeed is in danger, in danger of not finding the proper balance between two ugly extremes, mediocrity and success. And that's why I've chosen in this series to entitle it Qualities of an Excellent Ministry, because I do believe that you can separate excellence and success, and for the Christian, we are not to pursue success of any kind we are, however, to pursue excellence. But because we live in a day that is really focusing on the matter of success rather than Christian excellence, we need to find the balance. What is the balance for our pursuit of excellence in ministry? Well, I believe it is to understand the concept of excellence itself. Can we really say about the Christian life or about ministry and service that we're to do it in an excellent way? We're to do it in a way that is excellent in our walk with Christ, excellent in our job, excellence in our marriage, excellence in our family, our relationships. Can we really say that we are to pursue a life and a ministry of excellence? I believe that we can. And yet, for us, we need to determine what that really means. How can I live my life in such a way that God would be pleased and would say of my life and ministry, it is a ministry of excellence? And how can you in your life, in whatever pursuits that you are giving to the world, in whatever pursuits you are gaining in your family, what about you, what about your life? Can it be said of you that you are pursuing a life, a ministry, a service, of excellence. Well, I trust that when we are through with verses 2 through 8 of Mark 1, and when we're through looking at the life of John the Baptist, we will know far more about, it, about what it means to live a life of excellence and to have a ministry that is qualitatively a ministry of excellence. I want to give you four qualities of the life of John the Baptist and how he engendered and excellent ministry. Now, we'll probably be able to get through one of them tonight, but let me give all four of those to you so that you will have them set in your mind both tonight and in the coming weeks. The first quality of an excellent ministry is to understand the sovereign call of God on your life. The sovereign call of God on your life. 
Secondly, as we look at the life of John the Baptist and as we apply it in our own 20th century context, we must understand the specific content of our message. The specific content of our message. That's how we are going to have an excellent ministry. Thirdly, as we move in and through this portion of Scripture, we'll need to understand, if we're to have an excellent ministry, the sinful congregation to whom we minister. The sinful congregation to whom we minister. And then lastly, as we look at the very person of John the Baptist and his own personal approach to ministry, we'll see the submissive character of his life. The submissive character of his life. The sovereign call of God of your life and ministry, that's contained for us in verses 2 to 3. The specific content of your message, that's verse 4. The sinful congregation to whom you are set for ministry, that's verse 5. And the submissive character of the life of John the Baptist himself, that's contained for us in verses 6 to 8. Let's look tonight at the first quality or excellent ministry perspective that we need to have, the first of those four, and let's look at it in detail. It's contained for us in verses 2 and 3. You remember last time I said to you that verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is a title. It's really a title that marks the beginning of John Mark's gospel account of Jesus Christ. And therefore, as you can see in your New American Standard Bible, if you have that version, that verse 1 is a paragraph in and of itself. It says, by way of a title, I am going to announce to you the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And as Mark gives us that title, he moves immediately into that gospel account. You may not realize it, but the gospel actually starts with history. And the history is contained for us in verses 2 and 3. In fact, when Mark says, I'm going to tell you about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he tells us so much as a preliminary, we really don't even get into the specifics of the content of the gospel itself until we get all the way down to verse 15. All that has been said before in verses 1 to 14 is prologue. It is preliminary to the actual gospel itself. He says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and in verse 15, the very one whose gospel it is, speaks and he says, that is Christ, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And that's really the beginning of the gospel itself as to its content, or at least that which must be required of those who believe in the good news, repentance and faith. But there's a prologue in between, and we must know it. It's the prelude to the very gospel itself, and that's what verses 2 to 8 really tell us. And what it tells us is something very, very marvelous. It tells us, first of all, that if you are to preach the gospel, if you are to live the gospel, 
If you are to be a person who is involved in an excellent ministry, the very first thing that we must realize is that God sovereignly chooses, sovereignly calls any person who is involved in ministry to that very task. It is the sovereign choice of God. You're going to hear me tonight mention to you over and over and over again this word sovereignty, rulership, ownership, the understanding of God over all of the events from eternity past down into eternity through time and then throughout eternity future. Any ministry we have, any excellence in ministry, if we have a qualitatively excellent life and service to Jesus Christ, it will come first and foremost because God has sovereignly willed it so. And that's what Mark is intending to tell us in these first two verses. He says, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now I want to develop this concept of God's sovereign choosing, his sovereign calling on all of our life and ministry through the life of this man, John the Baptist. We must do that because he is the subject for which it is spoken here, God's sovereign call to his ministry. Notice what it says, first of all, in verse 2. It says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Now the very first thing that we understand about God's qualitative and excellent ministry through us to others is that it is by a sovereign call. It is by a sovereign call. Notice the word as there. As links verse 2 directly with verse 1. The good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written. And the very first thing that Mark wants us to know in his gospel account is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not some Johnny-come-lately idea. The gospel of Jesus Christ was foretold centuries earlier. In fact, so much so that it goes all the way back to eternity past in the mind and counsel and decree of God himself. And as you move into time, it was prophesied by Isaiah, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. It begins with the fulfillment of Scripture itself. It has come to pass. That's what he means when he says, as it is written. Someone said it like this. There was nothing unforeseen and suddenly contrived in the coming of Jesus Christ into the world. In the beginning of Genesis, we find it predicted that the seed of the woman should bruise the serpent's head, Genesis 3.15. All through the Old Testament, we find the same event foretold with a constant and an increasing clearness. It was a promise, often renewed to patriarchs and repeated by prophets, that a deliverer and redeemer should one day come. His birth, 
His character, his life, his death, his resurrection, his forerunner were all prophesied long before he came. Redemption was worked out and accomplished in every step, just as it is written. End quote. So as I said, it wasn't a Johnny-come-lately good news. It was actually the oldest good news that could possibly be given. It wasn't catching the Lord by surprise. It shouldn't catch us by surprise either. And it certainly should not catch Mark's readers by surprise. In fact, did you realize that there were three passages in the New Testament which speak of the fact that Jesus Christ, the embodiment of the good news, was actually the Lamb of God that we sang about this morning as both prophesied and fulfilled and by decree of God that very one in eternity past who would be the Messiah, the Savior of the world? Very, very interesting. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1. This will set forever in our minds the fact that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not some Johnny-come-lately doctrine. This is something that was actually decreed by God from all eternity. This was the plan of God for all time. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Verse 3 begins, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us, that's sovereignty, in him, that's in Christ, before the foundation of the world. Don't miss that. God, by his own sovereign choosing, by his own electing decree, by his own eternal purposes, sovereignly chose everyone who had ever believed from the foundation of the world. And he chose us, that is the elect, the body of believers that would ultimately make up the church, who would place their faith in Jesus Christ and repent of sin. We have all been chosen in him before the foundation of the world. That is unmistakable from this text. You cannot get around it. Some people argue against the doctrine of election. Some people try to mitigate the, the force of this passage and others like it regarding the predestinating work of God, and you cannot. Scripture affirms it and speaks of it here and even speaks of it here in the measure that it occurred in eternity past. There's another passage in the New Testament which speaks of this. 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter 1. It says to us very clearly there, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19 and 20. that we have been redeemed, not with perishable things like silver or gold, verse 18 says, from your futile way of life inherited from your fathers, but we have been redeemed with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Now, when was Christ and his lambhood, if we could call it that, when was this? When was this decreed? When was this planned? Where was the purpose for this to be set in motion in space and time? Verse 20. For he was foreknown as the Lamb of God, as the unblemished and 
spotless Christ, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God. You see, you cannot mistake the very sovereign character of a holy God who has planned everything that will ever happen in this world. It is his sovereignty. You even see this in the book of Revelation, chapter 13, verse 8. And this would be the third time in the New Testament that we are told that it was God's sovereign choice that Christ be the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. Revelation chapter 13, verse 8. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him, Christ. Everyone whose name has not been written from the, from the foundation of the world, uh, everyone whose name has been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. God has sovereignly chosen every single person who would ever come to faith in Jesus Christ. And when you come in to space and time, that is in eternity present, we could call it, Genesis 3.15 says that there will be a Savior. He will come from the woman that is Israel, and he will bruise the serpent's head, and he will be the one who is to come. And Isaiah, 700 years before the time Christ actually came as the incarnated Son of God prophesied that he would indeed come. That's why Mark says, as it is written. Or, from the actual literal language of the Greek text, Mark is saying, as it stands written. It's not just written from a pastime perspective, it stands written now. It stands forever. God has given us his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and it is his sovereign act. Beloved, it points to a sovereign, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God. And the first thing I see here is that God sovereignly has anticipated the coming of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Not only Jesus Christ, but if you look back at Mark's Gospel, he also sovereignly has appointed a forerunner, and that is John the Baptist himself. Notice verse 2 again. It says, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. That's a very interesting way of speaking. It's actually God, through the prophet Isaiah, speaking to a person, not about a person. Notice what it says. Behold, I send my messenger before your face. That is someone talking to another person. I'm sending my messenger before your face. What's, what's the point? God, through Isaiah the prophet, is saying, Behold, I, God, God the Father, I am going to send my messenger, that is John the Baptist, 
and I'm going to send him before your face. Whose face? Jesus Christ. God the Father is speaking, and God the Father says, I will send my messenger, John the Baptist, who will come before your face. And God the Father is speaking to God the Son about John the Baptist. You know what I see there? I see what we could call God's sovereign commissioning of John the Baptist. Right there. God foretold Jesus Christ in space and time that he would have a messenger. And that messenger would go before Christ's face. And that again speaks of wonderful sovereignty. God has a plan. He has a purpose. He has a purpose for John the Baptist himself. And I can't help from asking this question. Do we, in our own life, in our own ministries, believe that God has a plan for us? Do we believe that somehow God has orchestrated a plan and a purpose for the universe that includes this very, very significant and unique person called John the Baptist, and obviously sovereignly anticipating the coming of Jesus Christ in his gospel, and those things are, are so unique and so special that we would affirm those things, and yet how many of us would affirm this, that as God has sovereignly commissioned and anticipated the Lord Jesus Christ to come and a messenger to speak of Christ, God also has a sovereign commissioning and a plan for each and every one of us. He does. You say, how does that come about? God's sovereign choice, his decree, his eternal purpose, his plan. He has it all thought out. Aren't you encouraged by that? God has a plan. He's got it all thought out. Nothing to chance. In fact, there really is no chance, no such thing. No such thing as happenstance. No such thing as luck. God has everything sovereignly planned and foreordained. That's not something that, that's a terrible doctrine to throw away from ourselves. That's a wonderful thing to be grasped. That's a wonderful doctrine, the doctrine of God's sovereignty. I want to show you a couple of other people in the Bible that have God's unique and yet obviously God's sovereign choice on their life for which we can be greatly encouraged. Look in Jeremiah chapter 1. Jeremiah 1. You say, does God have a plan and purpose for everyone's life? Yes. Does he have a plan and a purpose sovereignly for his prophets? Yes. But he also has a plan and a purpose for each of us. And it is before we ever came on the scene. Jeremiah. He was going to be the prophet to the nation. God had prophesied that he would come, and this is it. Jeremiah chapter 1. It says, The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. You say, what's so significant about all of those things? Well, it's significant, first of all, if you're Jeremiah. Secondly, it's very significant because God is very precise. Very precise. It came also, verse 3, in the days of Jehoiakim, 
the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the exile of Jerusalem in the fifth month. Again, very, very precise detail. And then it says in verse 4, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, This is God speaking to Jeremiah. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nation. That's incredible. Uh, maybe this may not be uh, the uh, standard fare for all of us that the Lord has sovereignly bestowed His consecrating work on us in the womb. But nevertheless, God has a plan. He has a purpose for every single person. And the unique purpose of Jeremiah was that God had formed him in the very womb of his mother and had appointed him and consecrated him as a prophet to the nation. The same thing, by the way, is said of John the Baptist himself in Luke 1.13. The angel of the Lord is speaking to Zacharias, the father, and to Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. I'd say that's a vote for sovereignty, wouldn't you? I'd say that was a way to express the sovereign plan and purpose of God for John the Baptist. You say, where do I fit into all of this? I'm not John the Baptist. He's the unique forerunner. I'm not Jeremiah the prophet. I'm not anything like that. Does God have a plan and a purpose and a design for my life? Absolutely. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 139. Psalm 139. Yes, there's a plan. Yes, there's a purpose that God has for every single uh, person. Psalm 139. This is the testimony of King David, and I believe by application each and every one of us. Verse 13 of Psalm 139. For thou didst form my inward parts, Thou didst leave me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are thy works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from thee when I was made in secret, and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Thine eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in thy book they were all written. You see sovereignty there? The days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. How precious also are thy thoughts to me, O God. In other words, the psalmist is saying, I'm just overwhelmed by the the very thought of your sovereign care and your design for my life, even when I am in the womb and you are forming me and fashioning me into what 
you want from me. He says, how vast is the sum of your thoughts. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with thee. And then he says in verse 23, Search me, O God, and know my heart. In other words, God, I know you're omniscient. If you've done all of this and sovereignly fashioning my life from the very womb, I know that you know me. And as you search me, and as you know my heart, try me and know my anxious thoughts, and see if there be any hurtful way in me, and lead me in the everlasting way. John the Baptist was sovereignly commissioned by God to do what he did. Jeremiah was sovereignly commissioned by God to do what he did. All of us in our life are sovereignly called by God to do what we do in our ministry. And if you're to have an excellent ministry, if you're to have a qualitatively excellent ministry, it is to understand, first of all, the sovereign purposes of God. Behold, I send my messenger before your face. He will prepare your way. I, I can't imagine what John the Baptist was thinking as he continued to move in and through his life. And he, I'm sure, was reminded day after day after day from his mother and father that he had a sovereign design on his life and that God had commissioned him specially, uniquely, to be the forerunner of Messiah. Can you imagine the, the tremendous responsibility that he would have for his life? Can you imagine what he would think each and every day that he had a mission to fulfill? I think it probably shapes his perspective, don't you? I think we also ought to be shaped by the perspective that God himself is completely and totally sovereign over our lives. It should mold us and shape us and challenge us that we are not alone in this thing. That when we have a ministry of excellence, it is because God has sovereignly chose it to occur. Now, when we talk about this sovereign God that he anticipated from the Old Testament, the coming of Christ and the coming of John the Baptist, and when we understand that God sovereignly commissioned this man, John the Baptist, we need to understand something about the very prophecy that is given here in verse 2. You see it there when it says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. That particular prophecy, and I need to mention this because this is something that is hotly debated in New Testament scholarly circles. The problem with this particular prophecy is this. We don't know of a specific reference in the Old Testament to this prophecy itself. If you were to read the very specific words that are given here in Mark chapter 1, verses 2 to 3, you'd be very frustrated when you went back to Isaiah to confirm that prophecy because it isn't there. Now, there are some who then by that say, well, here is one of those alleged errors in our Bible because I searched in vain to find the specific reference in Isaiah the prophecy of this occurrence of, the, of John the Baptist and of Christ himself, and I can't find it. Well, I believe actually the reverse is true, because there are actually contained within this prophecy itself three different prophetic utterances of the Old Testament. 
And what Mark is simply doing is simply combining all three of them and naming Isaiah as the prophet who has contained this prediction of both John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. Let me show you what I mean. Go to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3. This is actually the first section of this prophecy that is labeled in Mark Isaiah's prophecy. The very first statement was actually made by Malachi. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. You'll see the parallels when you read Malachi 3.1. It says, Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now you can see the initial parallel to Mark chapter 1, right? Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. Now, first of all, we need to understand who is speaking here. Who is speaking? Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. Well, this is God the Father speaking. It says, the Lord of hosts. And that is a reference to God the Father. Which, by the way, communicates a tremendous amount for what Mark 1 is saying. Because in Mark 1, it says that the messenger is John the Baptist and that God is sending John the Baptist before Christ who will prepare Christ's way, right? In Malachi 3.1, God the Father is speaking about himself. Behold, I, I, God the Father, I am going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. Not Messiah, before me. And this, beloved, is a wonderful reference to the fact that Jesus Christ is God. This is a very, very wonderful implicit reference that Jesus Christ is God. God is speaking, as it were, on behalf of the second person of the Trinity, and he says, I am going to send my messenger, John the Baptist, and he will clear the way before me. That's the first reference in Mark 1, verse 2, to this prophecy. Not Isaiah, but Malachi. There's a second one. Turn to Exodus chapter 23. Exodus 23. You say, what is the, the, the real point of this? Well, the real point is, number one, to defend the inerrancy of Scripture, and secondly, to understand precisely what John Mark wants to tell us. Exodus 23, verse 20. And again, you'll see the obvious parallels. This is the Lord speaking again, God the Father. Behold, I am going to send a messenger. The word angel there could be easily termed a messenger. It's used synonymously or interchangeably that way, either angel or messenger. Behold, I am going to send a messenger before you to guard you along the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. 
Now, obviously, that first reference there in Exodus 23 is God saying to the children of Israel, I am going to send you a messenger who will prepare your way in the wilderness. And its first reference was to the children of Israel in the wilderness wandering. That's the context. And yet, there is a very clear allusion here in Exodus 23 to what is going to occur centuries later in the person of Jesus Christ when he comes. So, what Mark has done is he has quoted Isaiah. Isaiah is alluding to Malachi. Malachi is alluding to this Exodus event. And then you have Isaiah's prophecy itself. Now, I would admit that if Isaiah had absolutely no reference to this prophetic fulfillment that Mark speaks of, we could genuinely say that there might be a very real contradiction here. But Isaiah speaks of it, and that's why Mark has the opportunity to use Isaiah's name. If he wants to, to use Isaiah only as the prophetic fulfillment and not bring in Exodus and not bring in Malachi, that is his right, and obviously did it under divine inspiration. Isaiah 40, verses 3 to 5. Isaiah, in his prophecy, says, A voice is calling. Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. You see the reference back now to Exodus 23, the wilderness? Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Lift every valley, let every valley be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. And let the rough ground become a plain, and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all flesh will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And you can see that Isaiah obviously is also making an allusion to which Mark quotes him explicitly, and then says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. So you have three prophecies combined together with Isaiah quoted as the actual prophetic fulfillment. There's nothing wrong with that. And in fact, I think it's a wonderful testimony to the continuity of the Old Testament because you have the law section, that's Exodus, and you have the prophet section in both Malachi and Isaiah, so you can rightly say that Christ's coming and the, pro the prophecy of John the Baptist was both fulfilled in law and prophet. Jesus himself spoke of the continuity of the Old Testament, didn't he, as the law and the prophets. And I think that's exactly what Mark is saying. Whether we're speaking of the law, Exodus 23, or whether we're speaking of the prophetic sections of Scripture, either Malachi or Isaiah, John the Baptist has a sovereign commission on his life Jesus Christ has been sovereignly prophesied by God to come, and it stands written. That's the whole point. It is written in Isaiah the prophet. And then notice verse 3. The forerunner's ministry was sovereignly anticipated in the Old Testament. His ministry was sovereignly commissioned by God himself. And thirdly, the forerunner's ministry was, be, was to be sovereignly commissioned in the wilderness. First part of verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. See, now you understand why Exodus was written and was included in this prophetic fulfillment. 
Because God is saying, just as I will send my messenger, and in that case, of course, it was Moses, into the wilderness, so I will send John the Baptist into the Judean wilderness to go before Christ himself, to announce his way. And that's why Exodus is included there. That's why Isaiah's prophecy is included there. It was sovereignly designed by God to be a ministry in the wilderness. Someone said, we are apt to lose sight of him who went before the face of our Lord and to see nothing but the Lord himself. We forget the morning star and the full blaze of the sun. And yet it is clear that the forerunner's preaching arrested the attention of the whole Jewish people and created an excitement all over Palestine. It aroused the nations from their slumbers and prepared it for the ministry of our Lord when he appeared. Jesus himself says he was a burning and a shining light. You were willing to rejoice for a season in his life. And where was his ministry sovereignly designed to be commenced? In the wilderness. I can't resist pondering that for a moment. When you talk about your ministry, could you agree, affirm, praise, and thank God for a ministry that was sovereignly designed by him and prophesied in the Old Testament? Of course you would say yes. Can you affirm and praise God for the fact that he had sovereignly commissioned you from the womb so that you would be so filled with the Holy Spirit that you would leap in the very womb of your mother? You would say, of course, absolutely. Now when it comes to reality, your ministry will be in the Judean wilderness. Can you affirm that? Can you say amen to that? Can you say, yes, Lord, I love the wilderness. I'm sure John the Baptist may have asked himself a question a time or two. Lord, are you sure? It's uh, very cold at night out here. It's very hot during the day. The vegetation is, is really not to my liking. Uh, the, wild, uh, the wild locusts and the honey, I'm not sure that that's what I would like for my steady diet. I want to share with you a little bit of what it says about the Judean wilderness. Let me see if you'd uh, praise God for your ministry location. It says, He took his solitary way toward the boundless region of treeless downs, which stretched southward far beyond the reach of the eye to the great desert where the chosen people wandered in hardship after their Egyptian bondage, a desolation of broken country, verily a great and terrible wilderness. On the east, this silent land terminates in the barren shores and ill-omened waters of Lake Ashpolitis, or the Dead Sea. And on the northeast, the limit is reached at the small town of Engedi. Professor Palmer, who this writer quotes, gives us graphic descriptions of this region over which it is all but certain John's feet must have trod. The wilderness of Engedi is as grand but dreary a sight as can well be imagined. A broad rolling expanse shut in on every hand by high ridges with jagged summits, their sides deeply scored by torrent beds and intersected here and there by broad valleys of white marl with not a tree, 
and scarcely a shrub to be seen for miles around. From time to time, a small Arab encampment or a few isolated figures come in sight, and with their primeval costume and their wild and savage air, seem like some weird vision of David and his outlaw band conjured up by a highly wrought fancy, rather than the ordinary inhabitants of the place. At length we stand upon the shores of the Dead Sea, the frightful desolation of which accords well with the terrible history that attaches to the spot. We are undoubtedly in the neighborhood of the cities of the plain. Many writers have supposed that the agencies employed in the destruction of Sodom and its sister cities were the natural ones of volcanic eruptions accompanied by earthquakes. The mention in Genesis of slime, i.e. asphalt, pits in the neighborhood, and of Abraham seeing that the smoke of the country went up as the smoke of a furnace would certainly seem to indicate such phenomena. The asphalt pits are still to be seen, and the frequent and severe earthquakes that have occurred in the vicinity also point to the presence of subterranean volcanic action. This scene must have struck the mind of John, which turned more naturally to judgment than to mercy as a powerful evidence of the avenging hand of the Almighty, as he looked upon the broken, black, bituminous region, it would seem as if the iniquities of those old, lost, accursed cities had eaten into the very soil, making it barren and desolate forever. That's the uh, ministry location you'd prefer? I'm sure John the Baptist prayed fervently prayed, asked the Lord for the very place of ministry that he was destined to be sent, and it is the Judean wilderness. I've been there. We have taken, as we have toured Israel, these very long and fortuitous routes up and through the mountains overlooking the Judean wilderness. It is a God-forsaken place in some ways. It is amazing to me that anyone could have a ministry in that location. And yet... By God's sovereign design, he says to the forerunner, this is your ministry. This is what you're to do. This is where you're to be. He's to be God's herald. His status is to be unrecognized by all of the officialdom of Jewish religion. He is to make room for God, and his method is preaching. The call on his life is for men and women to prepare for Messiah, for God in human flesh. In fact, if you were to look at Luke 3, it adds the section in Isaiah 40 that Mark doesn't. And he says this, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every ravine shall be filled up, every mountain and hill shall be brought low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough road smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. What is Mark and Luke suggesting here? Well, remember that the herald that I told you about last week was to announce the coming of the king. And literally, what they did with that king's coming was that they did all kinds of construction. They brought low the, the hills and the mountains. They elevated the valleys. They made straight the way of the Lord. They constructed things in his honor. And that is exactly what the prophecy is foretold and John the Baptist is to speak. When Jesus Christ comes, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, 
make way for him. Make his paths straight. Cry out that Messiah is coming. And that's his message. That's what John the Baptist is to preach. He's to say, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. It seems like such a, such a lonely existence. And when we get further into this Gospel of Mark, we'll find out a little bit more about John the Baptist himself. I'm sure he probably was a very lonely man in some ways. And yet it seems as though Scripture only presents him as fulfilled and joyful and presenting Jesus Christ. That's what he was destined to do. That's his ministry. I can't help but think in my own life, could I, would I be willing to be used by God in that way? I mean, even if I knew that God had sovereignly anticipated my life and had foretold centuries before my coming, and if God himself had sovereignly commissioned me to go out and to preach the gospel, and if God himself had sovereignly designed that I would do so in a barren place, in a forsaken place, where it seems as though the witness of Sodom and Gomorrah were ever before me, could I respond to it? Could I respond to that kind of ministry? Well, it may not be in your ministry or mine, the place of the wilderness. It may not be just the unique place that John the Baptist holds as the one forerunner of Messiah. But the one thing is for sure, that the same sovereign God who did all of those things in his life is still at work today in your life. Do you believe that? You believe that God has a plan and a purpose for you. You believe that he has sovereignly foretold by his own decree in eternity past what you're to do, what your life is to be like, and that you need to have an excellent ministry as a result because God has foreordained it. God has spoken to it, and you must respond to it. Do you really believe in a sovereign God? Do you really believe that he's in control of the universe, or do you think that there's more a haphazard look to our world? Do you believe that God is sovereignly orchestrating all of the events of this world? Do you believe in the inspiration and authority of Scripture, that what God has foretold, he will bring to pass? And although the sovereign God of the universe had one forerunner, John the Baptist, a unique and special man, do you believe that that same sovereign God has called you to herald the gospel of Jesus Christ? It says in the Great Commission passages like Mark 16, verse 15, that all of us have been commissioned to preach the gospel. Are you being faithful to do that? Are you being faithful to the sovereign God's commissioning on your life? If you are, then you're experiencing an excellent ministry. I close with these words from A.W. Pink about the sovereignty of God. The doctrine of God's sovereignty, then, is no mere metaphysical dogma, which is devoid of practical value, but is one that is calculated to produce a powerful effect upon Christian character and the daily walk. The doctrine of God's sovereignty lies at the foundation of Christian theology, and in importance is perhaps second only to the divine inspiration of the Scriptures. It is the center of gravity, gravity in the system of Christian truth, the sun around which all the lesser orbs are grouped, 
the cord upon which all other doctrines are strung like so many pearls, holding them in place and giving them unity. It is the plumb line by which every creed needs to be tested, the balance in which every human dogma must be weighed. It is designed as the sheet anchor for our souls amid the storms of life. The doctrine of God's sovereignty is a divine cordial to refresh our spirits. It is designed and adapted to mold the affections of the heart and to give a right direction to conduct. It produces gratitude and prosperity and patience in adversity. It affords comfort for the present and a sense of security respecting the unknown future. It is and it does all and much more than we have just said because it ascribes to God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit the glory which is his due and places the creature in his proper place before him in the dust. That is God's sovereignty. And that is what we most glory in. That he's in control. I trust that you believe he indeed is in control of your life and that he has orchestrated the events in space and time for your best and for his great glory. Let's have an excellent ministry together. Let's pray.